There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, last week we talked a lot about different layers of income in retirement. We went through the different periods of pre- and post-retirement, as pre-retirement being sort of ages 50 to 62, early period of retirement, age 62 to 70, middle retirement, age 70 to 80, and late retirement, 80 plus. And today we're going to wrap up our retirement mini-series, which actually we've had a lot of people downloading the retirement episodes, I have to tell you. And we want to get into a discussion about investing and investment strategies during retirement years, because there's some pretty serious misconceptions about possible or potential changes to investment strategies when somebody goes into retirement. For sure. There's often people talk about, well, I guess I have to just get really focused on GICs and fixed income, and, and we'll get into that a little bit, and just some fallacies about changes to investment strategies, because as those periods point out, somebody that retires at I don't know, the normal retirement date, what, 65, let's, let's say. 65, sure. And if they live to 95, like that's three decades. So let's talk about how investment strategies change or don't change upon retirement. Sure, let's dive in. I mean, so listen, prior to retirement, what do you think is the greatest source of wealth? The answer? Well, it's written here, yourself. Exactly. I mean, so when you're working pre-retirement, so during your working career, which could be 40 years from age 25 to age 65 or something, it's your ability to earn income that actually allows you to set aside funds for future use in retirement. And the other thing it does is it allows you to recover from market setbacks. So if you have investments and they go down during a correction or a bear market of some kind, the income that you're earning really allows you to sort of make that back reasonably quickly. So I think a lot of people don't think about the fact that the greatest source of wealth for most people is their earning power and their income during their working years, not the money that you earn on your investments. Well, actually, very few people get rich from the stock market. It's just their savings rate that actually brings them their wealth. That's right. So this ability to generate income we talk about as human capital. And so in your prime earning years, the human capital provides the cash flow, funds your current consumption, and allows you to save for future consumption. That's to say future lifestyle expenses in retirement. So when you're working, this ability to generate income, it's kind of like holding a bond. A bond, as we've talked about many times, it's an investment that provides a regular stream of income. And in ideal circumstances, that's dependable from one year to the next. And since that bond provides a significant source of income, many younger investors may choose to invest their savings in higher volatility securities like stocks in an attempt to grow their savings for retirement at the fastest pace possible. Well, and we would actually usually counsel people that if they are younger to have more invested in higher volatility and less in lower volatility. That's right. And listen, this is not breakthrough information, but a lot of people, they don't think about, well, why should I have more stocks when I'm young and 
less stocks when I'm older or in retirement. And there's a good reason for it. And that's because you have a source of income like a bond, and that's what's called your job, your career. Hopefully. Yeah, Hopefully ex- exactly. Again, maybe a portfolio with uh, higher exposure to equities fits the typical strategy of younger investors of holding more stocks than those that are older. So once you reach retirement, essentially your human capital disappears. And in some cases, it disappears permanently. Now, some people choose to go back to work in retirement or work part-time or do something like that. But basically, the human capital element disappears and your income is going to be comprised of any pension income. So that could be company pension, CPP, old age security, or income from your retirement savings like registered plans, tax-free savings accounts, or non-registered investments. And you and Blair spent a fair bit of time talking about these various buckets or sources of income last yeah, time. We actually referred to them as layers of income because yeah. they are layers and it's kind of like peeling back an onion. Exactly. So when you think about it though, the loss of human capital has implications for investment strategies after you retire. So in the event of a significant downturn in the stock market, you've lost the ability to replace that lost value. So for many people, they do look at their asset allocation strategies and make changes in retirement to include a larger allocation to some of the lower volatility securities, such as bonds or other income investments. And this is kind of what happened a year ago when we had the global shutdown, economic shutdown, and the same thing that happened in the global credit crisis. I remember talking to an 80-year-old back then, and they said they lost 80% of their money, but the stock market didn't go down 80%. So they just had more invested in something that was higher risk that just didn't make it. And we've talked about that in other podcasts, well, highly concentrated portfolios in certain sectors of the market, oil and gas being the one that is more common in Alberta where we live. Oil and gas did not behave exactly the same as the rest of the market. And other sectors did extremely well. So for people that might have been lucky and invested in the tech sector last year, then they would have had a very different experience. So when we think about investing and investment strategies in retirement, some of the things we need to consider are the unique risks that exist for retirees. And so let's just talk about a few of those risks. So number one, I would say, is the risk of outliving your money. So it goes without saying that most of us would like to have sufficient resources to last our lifetimes. And the problem is we don't know how long we're going to live. So you look at some of the financial plans, and some of them are built around assumptions of people living to age 80 or age 90 or whatever might be the actuarial average. But in the real world, there's going to be some of us living into our 90s and maybe even longer, and particularly if you're starting out now in your 40s or 50s. And so the implications for our investment strategy is we need to be able to have a portfolio that will provide returns that maintain value near the end of our, what let's call, actuarial lifespan. And this is an argument for having sufficient stocks or equities in the portfolio to give you some growth and that will last your lifetime and not just necessarily an average lifetime. Because again, as I say, I mean, you don't care about the average, you care about how long you live. Well, so, and none of us are average, Exactly. Right? We're all better than average at everything we do. True enough. <laughs> exactly. Now, it also speaks to the need to have sufficient guaranteed income that you can't outlive. So for people with defined benefit pension plans, that's a lot easier. The pension plan basically pays you as long as you're alive. Now, and Of course, because there's not as many defined pension plans out there in the real world these days as there used to be, we have to look for other sources of guaranteed income. So here in Canada, we have 
Canada Pension Plan, Old Age Security. But those may not actually give us all of the income we need to meet our fixed expenses. And so one of the things when we're talking about investment strategy is looking at annuities as part of the overall investment mix to provide some guaranteed income to cover basic non-discretionary expenses. So for people without a big defined benefit plan or something like that, we always believe in, I personally like to think that people will have enough guaranteed income essentially to cover their guaranteed expenses. And so what I'm talking about there are basically non-discretionary expenses. So you have to have a place to live, you have to be able to eat, you have to pay for heat and electricity and things like that. Those are non-discretionary. You have to be able to pay those expenses. And so it's nice to be able to match up a level of guaranteed income that will meet those expenses. And we're not going to get into annuities too much today, right? Because it is a trade-off. That's right. And I think what every individual retiree wants to look at is, okay, well, how does my income and how do my expenses line up? How much of my income is guaranteed? And is there room for something like an annuity that will provide a guaranteed income for as long as I live? Greg, sorry to cut you off. I got one point on that. Something that Blair and I talked about last week. If you don't know that number, well, you better do a financial plan to get to that number. Yeah, absolutely. And and where can somebody that's listening to this get some financial planning from? Well, I wonder. I guess they could speak to their investment advisor and see if those kinds of financial planning services are available. And if they're not happy with that investment advisor, where could they go for that planning service? Well, gee, I don't know. Well, maybe to the CM group. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, when I talk about your advisor, that's who I'm suggesting. You need to have an idea. And as we've talked about this a couple of episodes ago, you have to have an idea of what your lifestyle and what your expenses will be in retirement in order to build that investment strategy to deliver that amount of income that you need. And again, as I say, things that provide regular income or guaranteed income might play a role in that. So the next risk I want to talk about, which is something that people might not think about in a lot of detail, but it's called sequence of return risk. And sequence of return risk can have a significant impact on investment strategies. So what is it? Well, this is the risk that's created in investment portfolios when money's being withdrawn on a regular basis, as compared to when money is left invested for a fixed period. So let me see if I can describe how this would work without the benefit of visual aids. So let's look at a few scenarios where there are no withdrawals being made. So let's say during a period prior to retirement, an investor has money invested. They're not adding to it and they're not withdrawing from it. It's just a fixed amount of money. So this is the pre-retirement. This is what we called the age group 50 to 62 roughly. Sure. Just an investment portfolio with no cash flows in, cash flows out. And so let's talk about some theoretical returns. So let's talk about a five-year time horizon or five-year investment time. Let's say in year one, the return was 15%. Good year. Very good good positive year. Year two was 13%. Pretty good. Year three, 11%. Still good. Year four, negative 5%. What happened? Well, something went wrong in the markets and they went down. And year five, negative 7%. Uh Uh-oh. So when you look at that scenario, the total return for the five years is 27%, and the average annualized return is 5% per year. Now, in this scenario that I just walked through, all of the positive returns were in the first three years, and the negative returns were in the last two years of that five-year time frame. Now, you can change the order of those returns any way you like. Say, put the negative returns in the first two years and the positive ones 
in the last three. So negative seven in the first year, negative five, and then 11, 13, and 15. Doesn't matter. In the end, you're going to have a 27% total rate of return for the five years or 5% annualized. And if you want to play with the numbers, you can put them in any order you want. The result will always be the same. Well, this is just math. It's math. It's just a compound annual return. You just multiply the returns all together and you get 5% a year. So that's the situation when you're leaving everything alone. Doesn't matter order of returns. The situation totally changes when you're withdrawing funds from a portfolio on a regular basis. You asked the question a few weeks ago, what would you do if you had a million dollars? Well, let's say you've got a million dollars invested in your portfolio and you're retired. The rate of return is 5%, the same 5% that I just talked about in the previous example. And let's say we withdraw $60,000 a year. So we're withdrawing 6%, which 60,000 is 6% of a million dollar portfolio. And our return is 5% a year. So in this case, we actually expect the portfolio to decline over time because we're withdrawing more than we're earning. And in fact, if you were to earn a constant 5%, let's say you took your million dollars, you got 5% every single year, you withdrew $60,000 or 6% every single year, the value at the end of 30 years could be a typical retirement lifespan. At the end of that 30 years, the million dollars would be 318000 Okay, so that's just by pulling out more than we're earning every single year, not a lot more at first, We're only taking out an extra 1%, but over 30 years, it's going to have an impact. And that million dollars, as I say, will be worth $318,000. That actually makes sense because you're, as you say, you're pulling out more than you're earning. You're depleting your capital. And every subsequent year, of course, the amount that you're withdrawing is proportionally a bit higher than it was the previous year. So that's earning a constant 5% every single year which we know is the only thing that will never happen. Never. We don't make many guarantees in this podcast, but I think I'm going to guarantee that we're not going to get 5% out of investment portfolios every single year. We're not supposed to use that word. Oh, sorry. It would be my guess that the (laughs) very strong likelihood of earning 5% every single year would be unlikely. Now, so let's say the sequence of returns in each five-year period of that 30 years, was like the example I just gave earlier, where the first three years, the returns were positive, and the last two years, the returns were negative, and we just repeat that sequence over and over again. Well, at the end of 30 years, you'd actually have $763,000. That's compared to 318000 if you just got the 5% every single year. And that's because the returns were stronger in the early years, and so the portfolio was allowed to grow a lot more before the impact of making those withdrawals really kicked in. So that's almost twice of what you would have got. However, here's the problem. If you did exactly the same experiment, starting with a million dollars, and the negative returns occurred in the first two years of each of those five-year periods, you'd actually run out of money after 27 years. So the difference is, gee, with the different sequence of returns, you would get somewhere between You'd be out of money after 27 years, or you'd have 763000 after 30 years. And so that's a that's very, crazy difference. It's a very dramatic difference, and it just highlights the impact of having negative returns in the early years of a portfolio where you're making regular withdrawals. Yeah, and people will say, well, that wouldn't happen to me. When I retire, it's going to be 5% a year forever. But somebody that retired in 2008 their first two years out of the gate would have been negative. And that had huge impact on people 
that chose that exact time to retire. And so again, it means you can't exactly time that. I mean, people are going to retire when they're ready, or in some cases they might be forced into retirement. It just highlights the risk of that sequence of return risk when you're withdrawing funds. So what does that mean for investment implications? Well, what it says is that if you're too heavily oriented towards stocks, for example, it could expose you to this risk by having extremely early poor returns, as we talked about in the 2008 example. And so with the poor early returns, it leads to a faster reduction of your investment principle and therefore the risk that you might run out of money too early. So one other risk that I really want to highlight because it's so important during retirement is inflation risk. So inflation is always a risk for investors, but when you're working and earning income or human capital, as we talked about earlier, typically wages and salaries increase roughly in line with inflation. And so the purchasing power of your income remains relatively constant during those working years. However, once you retire and your salary is no longer a source of income, then expenses could increase while your income remains constant. So in any planning exercise, we need to allow for increasing income to cover increased expenses over a long period of time. And just to put some numbers around this, let's say your annual expenses today are $5,000 a month or $60,000 a year. With only 2% inflation, those expenses will grow to over $9,000 a month or $108,000 a year over that 30-year time frame that we talked about earlier. So you're talking about going from $60,000 a year to $108,000 a year for exactly the same purchasing power. The reverse example of this is always when you have neighbors that tell you that they bought their house for $15,000. But it was like in 1960, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, who cares? That's right. <laughs> like, and when you work it back, it works out to about 2 to 3% a year. Yeah. <laughs> so again, when we talk about inflation, that has implications for our investment strategies during retirement. And it's kind of the same thing that we talked about with regards to longevity risk or the risk of outliving your money. There needs to be enough growth in the portfolio to allow for your assets to grow during the withdrawal phase of retirement. And if you are, for example, in a defined benefit pension plan, or if you're considering purchasing an annuity to cover your expenses, you would certainly want to have the option that allows a cost of living adjustment in those types of income sources. So when you look at those three risks that I just talked about, some of them are competing. In some cases, you need more equities in the portfolio to ensure you have enough growth to maintain the portfolio over time. And in some cases, the sequence of return risk, you want maybe a little bit less equity so that poor negative years early on in your withdrawal time period doesn't set you back too far off your goals. So again, it's again very individual and it's all a critical part of the planning process to make sure that we've got the right mix of equities and fixed income in the portfolio. Well, I think that's the key. Everybody's looking for us to answer the investment question, but the answer is it depends. It depends on how much you need to fund what your time horizon is and that will determine how much risk is required for your portfolio and then it kind of depends what happens in the markets absolutely it does but i want to focus on trying to answer that question for listeners like the investment question because most people start with the investment question as the first thing and then they work backwards and we're saying that's the wrong way of doing it start with the planning and work towards the investment exactly so in our work with clients I guess we sound like a broken record sometimes, Greg, but what do we focus on? Like asset allocation, diversification, all those good things. 
but they're there for a reason. So let's get into some rules for investing after retirement. I'm just going to name them out first and we'll just spend a minute or so on them. So the general rules for investing after retirement, number one, you already mentioned, be mindful of risk. Well, that's pretty obvious. Number two, watch out for inflation. You just talked about that. Three, think like Goldilocks. I'm going to get into that one in a minute. Four, break down your retirement into five-year segments or segments, whatever they might be. I think I'm on number five. Am I number five? One, two, three, five. (laughs) Consider real assets for diversification and inflation protection. Six, look to fixed income diversification and tax advantages. Seven, have a drawdown strategy, which you just talked about. And the last one is have an estate plan. So listeners might think, well, okay, but what do I invest in when you hear those things? What kind of answer can you give somebody when they say, what do I invest in? Like that all sounds good, but what do I invest in, Greg? Well, I think we go back to the basics of what we always talk about. You invest in a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds with an asset allocation strategy that reflects the amount of risk you're willing to take or able to take, but only the amount that you need to take in order to get the return that you need to provide the income in your lifestyle and in retirement. It's perfect. And exactly right, of course. So being mindful of risk, and you talked about this, is that if you take on too much risk in a period where you don't have a long time horizon and something happens, there's substantial consequences to that decision, or there could be. So getting back to that fundamental belief that be diversified and focus on your asset allocation. And that asset allocation comes from your plan. How much risk do I need to take? Exactly. And I think what's critical is that people only take the amount of risk they need to take. If you only need 4% in retirement to reach all of your goals, then why would you take on risk in trying to achieve 10%? Well, I just went through a financial planning exercise with a client and we just did that. In the outcome, it came up that one of the options was to not take any market risk at all, that they had enough saved up that they actually didn't need market risk. They could literally just leave it in cash. Of course, they chose to have a little better than cash as an outcome, but that watch out for inflation I won't get into because you already talked about that. Think like Goldilocks. This one, I like this idea, and it's just what you talked about. If your analysis, your financial plan, your investment analysis comes out and says, you need to have a 5% return to fund your retirement, similar to your example that you went through, why are you taking on risk of a portfolio that has an expected return of maybe 10%. Because what if it doesn't go up 10% and it goes negative 20? So the thing like Goldilocks is to get the just right investment strategy. So how's the Goldilocks story go? It's like the porridge. Yeah, too hot, too cold, or just right. Just right. You want the just right portfolio. That can only come from doing the planning. That's right. Exactly. Breaking down your retirement into segments is important as well. I mean, your needs when you're 65 are going to be different than when you're 85. So a discussion we often have with clients is, well, when I'm 65, I want to travel a lot, but when I'm 85, I probably am not going to be traveling. So my expenses are going to go down. I don't actually believe that to be true. I think your expenses just change. Exactly. So you've got to have a portfolio that's going to help fund that. And the idea of breaking down the retirement into segments, whether they're five years or not, but that sort of ties into what we always suggest to people when we talk about revisiting their plans. Because if you're not revisiting your plan every five years, then you're probably missing some very dramatic changes. Changes happen without us really paying a lot of attention to them. But when you look at what happens over the course of five years, there's probably been a lot of changes. Well, just look at the last five years. (laughs) Exactly. 
And so it makes sense that you're going to revisit your plan, check your assumptions, make sure that the previous assumptions you made are still valid or make changes to them. And at that point, maybe changes to the investment strategy will be warranted based on those updated plans. Exactly. The next one was to consider real assets. And now some people might have a problem with this one. What I'm talking about here is in our model portfolios. Greg, am I promoting our model portfolios? Yes, you are, Colin. Of course I am, because I think they're excellent. Of course I'm biased, and of course I believe they work. But in our models, we have a 5% exposure to an asset class called global real estate. And it's included because it's a diversifying asset class that doesn't tend to move directly at the same speed or direction as other markets. Exactly. And that's what you want out of a diversifying asset class is you want something that's not perfectly correlated to the other asset classes you already hold. Look to fixed income for diversification and tax advantages. Now, as the second word of fixed income is income, that's why you want to hold it firstly. But as you pointed out, with interest rates being so low, inflation probably above interest rates right now, there's a negative return, a negative real return. That's right. But that's not always the case. And there's two reasons to hold fixed income. One is for income, and the other one is to offset market risk. And both of them are important. Now, the next part of it is that that fixed income is going to attract your marginal tax rate. So holding fixed income vehicles makes most sense in a registered account. Absolutely. But there are cases where you can have some fixed income securities that are treated as capital gains income. And in that case, you'd want to hold them in a non-registered account. So not your TFSA or your RSP. But remember, the overall thing is fixed income provides some form of income, but it also provides downside protection. That's right. I think it's safe to say that for most people that we encounter, all of those people would want to have some fixed income in their portfolio, just like all of them would want to have some equities in their portfolio. Exactly. And it's going to vary. And again, as things change, the proportions may change, but you have to look at all of these asset classes and how they contribute to the overall return. When I look at it this way, my mom and I have exactly the same investments, exactly the same. It's just the weightings are different because our time horizons, our expected time horizons are different. So getting back to answering that question, what should I invest in? Well, you should invest in my mom's portfolio and just adjust your weighting to whatever your planning tells you. And that's a plug for my mom, by the way. Well, okay. Are we, are we <laughs> recommending your mom? Well, that's kind of weird. She's a wonderful lady. <laughs> Next, have a drawdown strategy. And you talked about this in your part there, but the drawdown strategy is important because when you go through things like last March, March of 2020, if your drawdown strategy was to take out a bunch of income in March when the stock market was down 35%, that might be a problem. But as you talked about as well, there's different layers of income that you can draw from. So even when the stock market's down, let's say you had an asset allocation, Greg, of, I don't know, 60% in bonds and 40% in stocks. And the stock market's down 35%, like March. And you need to pull out some amount, $5,000 in your example, $5,000. Well, where would you take it from? And I think the answer is you would take it from the fixed income, which had done relatively better than your equities while leaving the equities a chance to recover in value. And by the way, on another note, you might also rebalance at the same time, but that's for a different podcast. Exactly. Because if you take it out of your equity side, what did you call it? Sequential risk? Sequence of return risk. Yep. Sequence of return risk. That's a real thing. You're giving up all kinds of future growth. That's right. So have a drawdown strategy. And the other thing, by the way, and we haven't really talked about it, 
because we always talk in terms of our ideal situations. And so we plan our lifestyle in retirement. We have enough assets to cover that. And the reality is for many people is that if all of a sudden your income is reduced because of negative returns in the market, sometimes you have to adjust your spending and your plan will hopefully accommodate that because as we talked about earlier, there's going to be lots of non-discretionary expenses, which are shelter, food, clothing, etc. But there's also discretionary expenses, and which would be things like travel or entertainment, meals out, things like that. And some people, unfortunately, when bad things happen to the overall portfolio, whether it's from a bear market or just a correction, sometimes spending plans have to change until the market recovers or the portfolio recovers the value that you expected. Yeah, so maybe it's not organic avocados that you're buying right now, but you can still buy some vegetables, I bet. (laughs) Absolutely. No, that's right. It's just a matter of having flexibility in the plan to understand that things may not work out exactly as what's written on paper. Well, do they ever work out exactly as what's written on paper? Well, they don't. And sometimes we even joke about the fact that when somebody is presented a plan, it's probably somewhat off when they ride down the elevator to leave the building. And that's just to say that things change. A lot of these plans are built on assumptions, and the longer you're in retirement, the more accurate your estimates of things like lifestyle expenses, et cetera, will become. Highlighting the importance of not doing that planning once, but you're doing it regularly. Lastly in this section is have an estate plan. And what I mean by this is you need to have those three documents in order. You need to have a will so that everybody knows where your assets are deemed to go. You need to have a power of attorney and you need to have personal directives. Those just need to be done. So if we go back to answering the investment question, somebody might say, what does having an estate plan have to do with answering the investment question? And my answer would be, it depends how much you want to leave to your heirs. If your goal is to leave a legacy to your family or, I don't know, to an organization, well, that's going to determine your rate of return that is required to fund that. So the only way we can answer the investment question, and maybe we should have started this way, Greg, is what? Be diversified? Absolutely. It sort of wraps it all up from our last three podcasts in this series, is having a really good understanding of what, A, you want to achieve in retirement, which is a combination of things. It's your lifestyle. It's any giving that you want to leave at the end for heirs or charities or what have you. We've talked about philanthropy as well recently. So I think it's really having as strong or good an understanding as you possibly can have in advance in order to build the investment strategy that will help to deliver the assets that you need to fund it. And all of the usual rules for investing will remain in place. You need a well-diversified portfolio. You need a strategy in the first place, an asset allocation strategy that may be subject to change over time upon sober reflection and updating of things like plans. But you need to be diversified to avoid some of those specific risks that can happen if you're not. You need to have an asset allocation plan that's geared towards giving you the rate of return that you hope for and expect. You need to rebalance and you need to ensure that you're doing this, that you're controlling your costs. And again, once you've done those three things, then the rest still will be up to the markets. And the decisions you make during that time period. Because I want to make something very clear to listeners. I'm a little bit worried about what's been going on in people's accounts these days, Greg. I've heard of a lot of people who say, well, interest rates are so low. What's the point of having fixed income? Let's just put it all into dividend paying stocks. That is a huge mistake. 
or a potentially huge mistake because as what happened last March, stock market can go down very quickly. And if your withdrawal strategy is based on collecting those dividends, well, then you've got a problem. Well, and again, I think the other thing too is that there's unknown connections or connections that people just don't think of. So for example, in the dividend discussion, and we're not saying we are not fond of high quality companies that pay good dividends. We don't discriminate against those and probably all of our portfolios have them in one form or other. But the thing is that when you look at, particularly in the Canadian context, well, which companies tend to pay the high dividends? They tend to be things like utilities, pipelines, real estate, those kinds of companies. Well, they also share a common feature, and that is that they're all quite interest rate sensitive, those sectors of the market. And so the same reason why bonds are paying low yields, these stocks should be doing well. And if we go into a period where interest rates rise, based on inflation expectations or whatever that is, then that can have a detrimental effect on those kinds of companies specifically. Sometimes you pick one strategy and then all of a sudden you're accidentally exposed to different risks that you don't even think about at the time that you do it. So as always, as you point out, don't abandon excellent asset allocation strategies for short-term reasons. Right on. I think that wraps up our retirement mini-series. It does. That was fun. Yeah, that was great. And hopefully it was helpful and just to highlight some of the key elements that we think are important when you're thinking about retirement or developing a retirement plan. A really important discussion. And so we do want to let everybody know if you have questions about this stuff, I mean, reach out to us. Absolutely. I do want to also let the listeners know that as we talked a little bit about, next week we've got Daniel Crosby joining us. And Daniel Crosby is a behavioral finance expert. Yes. And that's going to be a good discussion because he's going to get into why people make the decisions they make, even though they might know that they're the wrong ones. Exactly. Just talking about how being human can lead to certain behaviors that may or may not be beneficial in the long run. Right on. Looking forward to it. All right. Till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.